0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their insights. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as it will help others to learn about autism stories. Ogi Ogas joins this episode to discuss being a game show contestant, what the type of music you listen to says about you, and how a mathematical approach can help you understand better about the autistic experience. We hope you enjoy today's conversation.
1: Ogi, thanks so much for joining me here today on Autism Stories. Doug, I'm so happy to be here. I am a fan of your show and it is truly a thrill to be able to join you and add my own story to your Autism Stories. It's very kind of you. And uh, Ogi, I wanted to start off like I do with a lot
0: of these episodes and learn about your story. Where do you say your story in the autistic community begins?
1: So I need to warn you, Doug, that my own story is a bit unusual as far as autistic journeys go. So let me share it. It's got a few twists and turns, so it's a little bit longer, I think, than most, but I'll try to convey it in efficient fashion. So I had a pretty happy childhood through high school. I did not know I was autistic. I did not know or suspect that anything was wrong with me through the end of high school, with one exception I'll mention in a moment. I think I got very lucky in my high school experience. I know a lot of Autistic folks in high school is where they start feeling different and apart from others. And I got lucky because I was definitely different, but I grew up in the 1980s. So at the time, you know, in the culture of the time, I thought I was a nerd or a geek, a dweeb. And at my high school, there was a lot of other geeks and dweebs. So I had a pretty big social network in high school. I didn't feel a loss of friends. I definitely felt my group of friends was different than say the popular kids, but it wasn't antagonistic. I even got invited once in a while to popular kids' parties, not often, but I wasn't an outcast in any sense in high school and didn't have this sense that I knew I was an oddball, but I hung out with other oddballs. was was kind of how I ended up in high school. The only exception, and this is very interesting to me, because my autism gives me all kinds of problems, and and later I'll probably list a a bunch of them, but I, I have all kinds of impairments from my autism. But in high school, I was just oblivious to all of it, with one exception, which was, I can't tell jokes. I cannot tell a joke, a funny joke, to save my life. And I first discovered this in high school. I was on the editorial staff of my high school magazine. And one day, the editorial staff got together. We had to come up with jokes for a a humor page. And I remember all the other kids were just Cheating off jokes, and some of their jokes were funny, laugh out loud funny. Some of them made a smile, but they were all reasonable. Like they were all in the ballpark. Every joke that the other kids did got a good job, or you know, maybe not perfect. We can do better, but you know, some respect. And then I would try, and you know, people would look at me like waiting for the punch. I tell the joke, they would wait for the punchline, looking at me. That was it. That was a joke. Where's the joke? And you know, I had to explain the joke. You know, as soon as you have to explain it, you know, you've lost, <laughs> you've lost the game of humor, and and. This shocked me. This shocked me because I loved comedy. I loved uh, George Carlin. I loved uh, Richard Pryor. I liked watching and listening to stand-up comedy. So I liked humor. I liked to laugh. And here, I wanted to tell jokes, and I, I couldn't do it. And I couldn't understand it. Like, watching the other kids easily come up with jokes, and it's so hilarious to me now. Coming out of high school, I thought the one thing in my brain that was broken was my ability to tell jokes. But I, other than that, I knew there were some things off- There were some problems with my reading. There were some problems with my math, problems with socializing, but I did not conceive of myself as broken. However, I got to college and that changed very quickly. So in college, it was clear I was different than others more intensely than it had been in high school. And I went to college at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And basically, I had a very extreme experience happened to me that got me kicked out of MIT. I've actually been kicked out of five different colleges, uh, all because of something to do with my autism. I've had a a tough life educationally that way. But the first time I got kicked out was at MIT. I don't want to go into the details here. I'm writing about it in another one of my books called Large Gods for Small Children. But I'll just say just enough. I need to say something, because this influences everything that happened next in my life. Basically. I was convinced I was talking to extraterrestrials, and eventually I ended up in the dean's office, the dean, and I shared this with him. Now, I remember thinking that he might help me, that he would be excited that I had made contact with aliens and and perhaps guide me on MIT resources to use in my endeavors. But that's not what happened what happened was I got booted out of MIT and got committed to a mental hospital. And so that was the first time that I really came face to face with, wow, there really is something different about me. There's something wrong with me. I'm in a mental hospital and just, it seemed to come out of nowhere. And so that was the first time I interacted with mental health professionals. So I had a psychiatric team, I had a psychiatrist, multiple psychiatrists, and I was in uh, Shepherd Pratt which is a mental hospital in Baltimore. And I was there for two long months. That's a long time. It should have been plenty of time to figure out I had autism. But this was uh, 1989 or 1990, and nobody had any handle on autism at all back then. Looking back, it was clear like they didn't even consider autism as a possibility. And after two months of this, what they concluded is that I was a spoiled self-absorbed narcissistic overachiever who was depressed that my mental health condition that was depression but really the story was that I was a spoiled self-absorbed person and I knew that was wrong. I knew I wasn't depressed. I knew that was not the thing that was odd about me and weird about me. I wasn't sad. (laughs) I was. My brain was just very strange and my relationships, my thinking about different things was clearly strange. And they were just ignoring all of that. I was very open about my experiences, open talking about what I perceived were deficits, but they just, again, in retrospect, they just weren't equipped to diagnose autism. So I had a very bad experience. And that was the start of me having some negativity towards the mental health profession, you could say. So I came out of that. At that point, I knew something was wrong with my brain. Something was wrong with my mind. And I needed to find out what, so, I started trying to understand what this thing was. You know, I was considering mental illnesses. you know, I, they didn't seem to match up like I, schizophrenia, no, I didn't. Schizophrenia didn't seem right. So finally, the way I figured out what it was was I was actually I got into grad school at Boston College to study the mind. And I was studying the mind because I wanted to figure out what was wrong with my mind. Very specifically, I wanted tools to figure out what was wrong with my brain. And at Boston College, I had a friend, and this friend was studying theory of mind, which in the 90s was the leading theory of how autism worked, and even today there's still researchers who believe theory of mind has an important role to play in autism. And so my friend was studying theory of mind as part of autism research, and he was talking about autism, and that made me look at the DSM and the autism literature, and I realized this is it. This is exactly what I have. It was at Boston College in grad school when I, I guess, self-diagnosed, realized I had autism. It was crystal clear at that point that I was at grad school. I started reading the academic literature on autism, and I also set up new appointments with psychiatrists and neuropsychologists to try to look with this new perspective. And the short of it is I came out thinking, wow, they do not have a handle on autism researchers, the scientists, the mental health professionals, again, this is the 90s, so this was mid to late 90s. They did not have a handle on it. I did not think they had anything that could help me. I wanted help. I wanted something to improve my life. At that point, I was having all kinds of social problems. It was clear that uh, friendship after friendship, falling apart, uh, problems with girls, make girlfriends, and then they'd fall apart, Uh, problems with teachers, just any kind of social problem I had, it was clear I needed help. But there was nothing in the academic literature, the medical literature in the 90s that I thought was on the right track. So I vowed to myself, I'm going to go crack autism on my own. So I set out, I built my own program of study and attack, and it was a very mathematical approach. And I thought the way to crack autism was to approach it mathematically. And the top program in mathematical neuroscience in the country was at Boston University. So I ended up transferring to Boston University, studying with what I consider to be the world's leading mathematical neuroscientist, and learned how to study the brain from a mathematical point of view. And I became convinced during that time that the key to understanding consciousness, or the key to understanding autism, was consciousness held the key to understanding how autism worked physically in the brain. So I was after a physical, neural explanation of the source of autism, and I became convinced that if you could explain consciousness, autism would fall out of it. I then focused on trying to understand the mathematics of consciousness, and I was successful. I and my uh, co-researcher and best friend, Dr. Saigadam, another mathematical neuroscientist, we drew on the mathematical neuroscience that we had been trained on at Boston University, and you know we published an account of how consciousness works, and. We used that, able to use that to explain how autism worked. So that was my autism journey, was I finally used these skills I had spent my life developing. It took me 30 years, but I have a a very comprehensive mathematical understanding of how autism works.
0: Now, uh, you mentioned uh, being a mathematical neuroscientist. And from what I understand, you believe that the underlying neural dynamics of autism has been revealed by a mathematical approach. Can you explain how you believe that autism works in our brain? Yes. We need two
1: pieces. First, how consciousness works. And then once we know how consciousness works, I'll explain there's something broken in the dynamics of consciousness in our brains. Consciousness works differently in other people than in autistic people. And it's this difference that's the source of the autism. So let me quickly explain how consciousness works. And then I'll explain what's broken that creates autism. The key thing to understand about consciousness is that it solves something called the attention dilemma. The attention dilemma is easy to express. It's this, what should I focus on next? What should my brain pay attention to now? That is the attention dilemma. The reason it's a dilemma, a dilemma is a trade-off where you have to choose one thing or the other. You can't have both. You know, you can have paper or plastic. You can't have paper and plastic. You can turn to the left or you can turn to the right. You can't turn to the left and to the right at the same time. With attention, you can focus on this or you can focus on that. You can't focus on them at the same time. In our brain, our human brain, we have a number of modules, each neural module, each brain module, is devoted to a different purpose. For example, we have a visual object recognition module, a visual what module. It tells us what something is. I look, I see something red and circular. My visual module tells me that's an apple. I also have an audio what module. It listens. I hear there is a where module. Where is that sound of snapping fingers come from? There's a targeting module. I'm reaching towards of the snapping fingers. So we have different modules, each focused on something different. And here's the key thing. They're all active at the same time. They're all processing our world around us at the same time. They're each paying attention to something different at the same time. My visual module might be, I'm looking out the window right now, I see a tree, but I might hear somebody walking behind me in the other room. Or let's say I look down, I see a $100 bill lying in the road. I'm about to reach the ground, but I hear somebody behind me saying, wait, there's a truck coming right at you. So we have to decide which do we pay attention to? Do I go get the $100 bill or do I dodge out of the way of the truck? That's the attention dilemma. So how does our brain solve the attention dilemma? How does it decide what to focus on now? Now you might think the easy answer would be there must be some module in our brain that's in charge of attention, some decider that decides now look at that, now pay attention to that. That Maybe it weighs all the information available and says now we're gonna pay attention to that. There is no centralized decider for attention. There is no module or neuron or part of our brain that decides what the whole brain should attend to. It's decentralized. It's decentralized. Every module has the same power. There's not one of them that's in control of the others. So then how does our brain solve the attention dilemma? The answer is consciousness. Consciousness is an attention management system for our brain. Consciousness controls which module is in charge of our brain at any moment. I mentioned I see a $100 bill. I hear a voice of somebody say, watch out for that truck. Well, consciousness decides which of these modules has the most intense signal. The signal, there's a truck coming, has the greatest intensity. So that creates a kind of resonance that takes over the whole mind. Think of it like throwing rocks in a pond. The bigger the rock, the bigger the ripple, throwing a lot of pebbles. And then one big giant boulder, the boulder's ripples are going to take over all the other ripples. So that's what happens in consciousness, whichever one of our modules has the most important thing to pay attention to, will take over the entire mind, all the other modules, then will start focusing on the same thing. So instead of looking at the hundred dollar bill, I'll turn, I'll jump out of the way of the truck. I might look towards the truck to see it coming, but I'll focus on the truck, the truck coming at me will become the most important thing. It'll become what my mind is paying attention to now. And that's done through consciousness. So consciousness is a mechanism, a dynamic that decides what we're going to focus on next by seeing which of these modules has the greatest intensity, the greatest activation, the greatest urgency that's consciousness. So what is wrong in this consciousness system in autistic people? What makes us autistic? So, Consciousness is designed to naturally focus on the most important stimulus at any given moment, the most urgent stimulus at any given moment. But our brain biases that in a very important way. Our human brain, and this is different from all the other animals, all the other animals, all the other vertebrates share the same consciousness system with us. But where ours is a little bit different is that we bias what we pay attention to. In particular, we bias towards other human beings. One of our modules, and this is key to understanding autism. There's one of our modules in our brain called the why module. Why should I do this? It gives us reasons for doing things. I'm going to break up with my girlfriend because I am angry at her. I am going to eat this pizza because I am hungry. Why? Because I'm hungry. Why? Because I'm angry. Why? Because I'm sad. Why am I crying because I am sad? It's our why module evaluates events, or people, opportunities, and assigns them an emotional value, you know, good, bad, going to make me angry, going to make me scared, the value gives an emotion to it. Now, why this Y module is so important in our human brain, it does something extra, only in human brains. Our Y module paints other people, it makes other people highlighted in our experience, it makes them glow. It's like a magic laser or magic spotlight that always aims at the people in the environment. So this is designed to make human beings always prioritize humans in the environment. It makes the consciousness cartel, it makes our consciousness system automatically orient towards people. It basically gives whichever stimulus has the greatest activation takes over our attention. Well, our Y module makes sure that other people, are usually the thing that gets the most attention so when healthy people non-autistic people walk into a room if there is a bell a book a ball and a stranger a person they don't know they will automatically focus on the stranger why because their y module will activate that human it paints them it highlights them it makes it extra special it makes it glow in their attention it orients the attention towards the person and this is the start of a cascade of social processes in our brain. Our human brain are designed to do all these forms of social cognition, but it all starts by automatically, instantaneously, orienting towards people. And that's done in this Y module. So the Y module is supposed to govern our attention system by always making sure that if we have a complicated environment with lots going on, we pay attention to the people, that the people are the most important things and this is what's broken in autistic people we our brains do not highlight other human beings the way they're supposed to it is a malfunction in the y module in the emotional module of our brain we do not automatically assign emotions emotional highlights to other people we do not paint other people with the same glowing colors that the non-autistic people do so that's the key thing happening in autism And this simple thing causes all of the autistic effects. It explains special interests. It explains the fact that some of us become savants, you know, exceptionally good at things. All of the different things we associate with autism all flow out of this. Let me explain why. Why does this simple malfunction have such a dramatic effect on our brains, on our experience of reality? Because our human brains are designed to always orient towards people and then We have things like language processing. We have social gesture processing. We have social norm processing. We have all these systems designed to learn that stuff, but it only works if we first are focusing on people, autistic people. We will focus on the book or the ball or the bell as it's equally likely that we'll focus on objects or ideas or things as the people. And so what happens is for each individual autistic person whatever the individuality of their other modules. Some of us are naturally visual people. Some of us are naturally musical people. Some of us like naturally to be outdoors and play sports and be active. An autistic person can have any of these natural biases. And so what will happen is whatever other module is naturally inherently dominant and that autistic person will tend to dominate consciousness, tend to dominate attention. Instead of focusing on other people, will focus on that special interest and that special interest is determined by whatever modules of our brain, you know, I'm a visual person, you know, so, so I'm biased towards looking at images. That's just how my brain works. And so my autistic experience is a very visual uh, experience, but another autistic person, you know, they might just have their taste might be the thing. That's the, the strongest module in their brain. And then their autism might be more taste focused. So this speaks to the question of whether autism, is a spectrum disorder i say autism is not a spectrum disorder in fact all of mainstream psychiatry's views of autism i think are wrong they say autism is a spectrum disorder it is not it is caused by a malfunction in the y module. it's not a spectrum of malfunctions it's that it's one thing covid COVID manifests in many different ways. Some people have fevers, some cough, some sneeze, some lose their taste, some lose their smell, some bed-stricken and can't get out of bed, and some people have no symptoms. So we could call COVID a spectrum disorder, but it's not a spectrum disorder because we know the cause of it. It's a virus. There's a spectrum of manifestations, but it's not the spectrum of underlying disorders. We all Uh, Mainstream psychiatry also says autism is a developmental disorder. Again, it's not a developmental disorder. It's a malfunction in our Y module. It influences our development, but it's not primarily or fundamentally a developmental disorder. Another theory is that it's a theory of mind disorder. Now we can understand why scientists believed it was theory of mind. Theory of mind is this idea that you know that other people have thoughts and feelings like you do. So only a person with theory of mind could say, hey, she's thinking that I'm thinking about her. If you have theory of mind, you can do that. And so scientists were trying to look at that mechanism, but that's not the mechanism. It's the why module. So it's not the theory of mind was an attempt to get at that using the available data, but we can see why that is also wrong as well. This also speaks to the question of we see that there's significant differences in the presentation of uh, women with autism and men with autism. the speculation whether they might be different conditions or just maybe they play out in different ways. But again, we can understand now, male autism and female autism, the underlying cause is still fundamentally this Y module. But female brains are different in many ways than male brains, especially socially, you know, because of the different hormone, the hormone milieu in female brains is different than the hormones in male brains. Their social interactions are biased differently than males are. And so, that produces these different subjective experiences and different social effects. It's because women's brains are just, they have other forms of social cognition. They have other social dynamics in their brain that are still intact and still functional and sort of counterbalance some of the autism in different ways than in the male brain. But again, the underlying cause, the source, the neural source is the same, I would say. We mentioned earlier, you're a
0: mathematical neuroscientist, uh, but you're also an author. And I read uh, where you wrote that My books attempt to reveal hidden but consequential rooms in the haunted palace of the universe. What might be some of those uh, consequential rooms that people will learn about when they're reading your books?
1: Well, I, I just shared one perfect example, which is that there is an explanation of autism. We can understand physically how it works if we're willing to take a new perspective. We tend to look at it, take some mathematical ideas perhaps, some different physical ideas than we're used to, we can see things in a whole new way. And this approach to autism is the sort of thing I'm talking about. I was curious
0: about a book you wrote called, This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Two of my favorite musical acts, and they're very different,
1: are Elton John and The Roots. What would you say this says about me? Oh, I love that question. Thanks so much for asking that, Doug. So let me very quickly talk about my book and more importantly, my co-author. I wrote This Is What It Sounds Like, my book, with Dr. Susan Rogers. She was the first successful female record producer in the music industry in modern times who came up on the engineering side. There were other successful female producers who had been musicians, successful artists. But she came up as an engineer, which at the time was very unheard of. She said she can count on less than one hand the total number of female engineers in the music industry. When she was there, she got her start with Prince. She engineered Purple Rain, which was the sixth most successful album of all time. So she had a great start. She produced a number one hit song with Bare Naked Ladies. So she had a very successful career as a music producer. But then she went on. She dropped out of the music business and went back to grad school, got a Ph.D and in brain science to study music. And then she became a professor of music, studying music scientifically and academically. So she was my co-author. And we try to explain why people fall in love with the music that we do. So you mentioned Elton John and The Roots, two great choices. And so what we try to show is that, I just explained a moment ago, we have different modules in our brain. And so we have different modules that process different aspects of music. So for example, there's a rhythm module. We have a part of our brain only processes rhythm, part only processes melody, another lyrics, another timbre, timbre is the quality of the sound. The difference between a violin and a trumpet, the sound difference, that's timbre. So these are four different modules in our brain and each of us as individuals, each of us as music listeners, music lovers, these different modules are different in each of our brains. So some of us respond more to rhythm some respond more to melody. So my first question to you would be, when you listen to Elton John, what's the things that captivate you the most or excites you the most? Is it the the lyrics? Is it his melodic voice? You know, is it the, is it the rhythm? What aspect of the song, of his music, you know, do you, thrills you?
0: So I used to think it was the lyrics and then his ability to play the piano and things like that, you know, how it all meshed together. But as I've gotten older, I've realized that emotions are what guide my life. So I'm wondering if it's the emotion uh, and the authenticity
1: of of his work. So some of the other dimensions I was going to say next. The number one is authenticity. We respond to authenticity. That we feel the emotions are true. That the singer is communicating emotion that we feel is true. So it sounds like authenticity. Is important to you and so then I would naturally ask when you listen to the roots is it the emotional authenticity that strikes you there too or is it something different
0: no it's it's definitely it's definitely the emotional authenticity you know they're a great band but um I used to think again I thought I thought it was it was the lyrics but I think it was how authentic they were and how much I felt connected to what they were saying
1: so that's the question what are you connecting with their message you know that the, the contents of their song what they were trying to convey yeah i, I think so
0: yeah
1: so you'll be more you know connected with the lyrics and the meaning some people connect more with just the raw sound you know I, when i was younger i couldn't process lyrics because of my autism i had trouble sitting in lectures i had just trouble listening to people in general so for most of my life when i listened to music i just the lyrics were like just another instrument. I didn't process the meaning or the content and, and didn't think about music <laughs> at all that way. But uh, it sounds like you did. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. how can
0: our Here's, listeners learn more about you and your uh, books beyond this interview?
1: I'd recommend starting, I have a website. It's my name, com. I have links to all my books and discuss, I have actually videos <laughs> to talking about my books. And I also have videos about autism. So uh, this explanation of autism, I, I was just shared briefly, I'm trying to share it in greater detail in videos uh, on my website as well.
0: Now, before we go, I must ask you about something that makes you an, a unique guest uh, here on Autism Stories. I've interviewed a l- lots of people, hundreds of people now, and something you've done that I don't believe any one of our <laughs> other guests have, and that you've appeared on multiple game shows. So, one in particular, you appeared on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, in which you won a half a million dollars you and from what I understand using your cognitive science research to guide your game strategy I'm wondering from an autistic perspective thinking about the sensory and executive functioning regarding that knowing the expectations things like that what was your experience in those situations they seem on the surface they could
1: be quite overwhelming my game show stories are definitely autism stories. My (laughs) autism is all bound up in all kinds of ways with these experiences, let me tell you. First and foremost, by the time I reached my 30s, I was in graduate school at Boston University, uh, studying the mind, studying consciousness, trying to figure out how autism worked. And at that point, I realized I am not capable of having a job. I I cannot work in an office. I cannot have a boss. I had had some work experiences and they had all ended in disaster. Endless conflict with any authority figure, and just being in the office with the people around—I don't know what to do. It's confusing. I, it was awful. So I was starting to realize, oh my gosh, I can't work in any normal way. But I need to have a life. I got to find a way to come up with some money. Like yeah. I, I was living in crappy apartments, you know, paying rent. And I was like, if I can just get some money to buy like some property, like a home, as my home base like then I can just find a way to just earn enough money to live there. But, you know, I I need that first chunk of money. But otherwise, what am I going to do? I can't, I can't work. I can't job. And I, I, you know, I I need a stable place to figure out autism (laughs) was my thinking. And so I I sat and I thought, hmm, well, maybe game shows because I have a terrible memory. Uh, My memory is awful. And one of the things I was trying to understand was why my memory is so bad. I thought that might've been linked to my autism, you know, especially in the early going before I really had a handle on things. I thought maybe the the memory was a clue. And so in grad school, I had spent a lot of time studying how memory works. And so I thought, you know what, I can use this knowledge about how memory works to go win money on a game show and don't have to work anymore. And I can just study autism. I studied very systematically for millionaire. So I, Got a list of every question that had ever been asked in the show, broke it down by categories, analyzed it, came up with a system for studying. Very, very focused. <laughs> I obsessively studied. So I didn't know any trivia at all. I'm terrible at trivia. Since I've been on these game shows, everybody thinks I'm good at trivia and ask me trivia question. I'm terrible. I, I, I've got bad memory and I don't care about trivia. But I forced myself to study trivia for two months intensely, like you know, all day long, seven days a week, until I... Felt like, I was well prepared for what the show was going to offer. I got on the show, but then I quickly realized yes, I had done a great job preparing for the questions and, and that the mental part, but I had done nothing to prepare for the emotional part. And suddenly, I'm there, you're in a studio, there's people 360 degrees around you. It's a tall chair. The studio is designed to make you nervous. The chair's high off the ground, and, and you know, there's a bump, bump, thumping sound. And people, 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 you know, as an autistic person, you don't want a big crowd in your face when you're trying to do mental activity. So my adrenaline spiked, my emotions went off the chart, and I abandoned my training. The key moment was uh, I had to use a uh, Ask the Audience lifeline, so you can <laughs> ask the audience for help on one, one time on the question. Right. And I had prepared mathematically. I knew if I see a bar that looks like this, I should do this. If I see a pattern like that, like I had prepared and prepared and I saw, I did ask the audience, they show you, this many people say choice A, this many people say choice B. I saw it and it matched the pattern I had prepared for. And I knew if I see this pattern, do this. And I was so nervous. I just threw it out the window. I was like, I'm too nervous. I can't do it. I got to phone a friend. So I just burned that lifeline. If I had kept that lifeline, I would have had it because I reached the million dollar question. And here's what's so terrible about the million dollar question. It was a question about Boston, where I live. And I knew because they taped me on a Friday and the show finished before I got to the million dollar question. So basically I had a whole weekend where I knew I was going to get to the million dollar question. So I spent the weekend studying for the million dollar question. And I knew the most common topic on the million dollar question was history, American history. So I spent the whole weekend studying American history and I had seen a painting of the Boston Tea Party. And my million dollar question was, which of these four ships was not at the Boston Tea Party, and I had seen a painting on that weekend. No, I hadn't studied it. I hadn't said, okay, I'm going to memorize these names, but it had hit my mind, and so I was there in the chair. I have never been, had to do a mental task that was worth so much. If I could just remember that painting and could see the names of those ships, I'd be a millionaire, and I tried, I had all these memory techniques i had worked on to prepare for the show and i used them all and they worked and i could visualize it and i realized the answer it was d william and i said i think the answer is d william and she said meredith Vieira, the host said is that your final answer but it was not my final answer i i just was too nervous the emotions just exploded i couldn't think straight and i was like i cannot make a decision feeling like this. Like, I'm out of my mind right now and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to take that half million dollars. Because if I'd answered and got it wrong, I would have lost all my money. I would have gone down to $25,000, you know, peanuts compared to half a million. So I walked away, took the half million. And of course, the answer was D. And I think I'll regret that (laughs) my entire life. I should have just gone for it. So a million dollars would have been life-changing amount of money. A half million did change my life. I did get a condo and I've been able to hold on to property ever since so it did change my life in a very meaningful way and I haven't had to work as a result of that so it was successful but a million dollars would have been uh, even more nice well but it does sound like you
0: like you were telling us earlier like that's what you had initially asked the universe for is just a place so you can kind of figure yes. things out that's what the universe delivered to you
1: absolutely without that I wouldn't have been able to figure out autism because I needed a stable environment instead of just I was constantly just got to make rent this month, you know, just this constant feeling of instability. And that gave me, that was the first time I had a stable life in my autistic life after that was after I got that property. So it really did have a big impact on my life. Well, Ogi,
0: I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time to
1: uh, talk with me today. Doug, it was a joy. Thanks for letting me ramble and ramble. It was a real pleasure.
0: Thanks so much to Ogi for the conversation. To learn more about Ogi, please check out the link in the podcast description for this episode. Here at Autism Personal Coach, our clients are the experts, our coaches are the guides. The majority of supports for autistics are not helpful. They try to fix us, not support us. That's why many are confused when we say our clients are the experts, experts of their lived experience. Our clients are the experts for what has worked for them and about the things they need and want in their lives. Our coaches first listen to our clients and then ask thoughtful questions, offer resources, and strategize with our clients so they can get what they need to thrive. Would you want a guide in your life to coach you to get you the things you desire? If so, then visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories. And if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.